0: Mark 14. Uh, But before we look at Mark 14, as you may see in your program, verses 12 to 26, we have to do two things. One, we have to go 1,500 years in the past, okay, Uh, and also go about 15 hours in the future uh, from the upper room last supper meal. You with me? So we're going to go 1,500 years in the past, according to when Jesus was in the upper room, Mark 14, 12 through 26, And then in order to take a really faithful look at that text, we also need to go about 15 hours into the middle of the night, even early Friday morning, to really understand what the Lord is showing us and everything that's packed into the Lord's Supper. I'm not going to tell you how many points I have this morning, but just track and be amazed and enjoy the narrative with me. We'll go 1,500 years in the past first. And this is called the, the Passover. Um, But just not to assume anything, let's all get on the same page, and even if you could be up here telling this story, as I recap it, I I guarantee you we may hit a couple gaps, so hang with me, right? It all starts with this man named Joseph, who through a series of fortuitous circumstances, you could call it blessing, uh, becomes essentially the COO of Egypt, Uh, brings his family to Egypt to save them from a famine. Uh, God's people then grow from about 70, we're told in Genesis 46, to about 2 plus million based on the count of men that we have. Then a new pharaoh rolls into Egypt who's not sympathetic to Joseph. And the pharaoh becomes kind of a not-so-fair-o. I told my wife I may or may not tell that joke. He abuses God's people, he abuses God's people and for fear of a riot because of how they are growing, they overwork them and give them unfair, impossible tasks to disappoint them and to to distract them, to discourage them. God then goes and calls Moses out of retirement, there's a gap though. there, go read it, and tell Pharaoh what? Let my people go. That was weak. I have the beard, so I'll do it. Let my people go, right? We've all heard the stories. There's only one true account, though some can be entertaining if we're careful. God performs signs and sends plagues, and God sends one last plague, knowing that Pharaoh would then listen to this one. The tenth and the final plague would be the death of every firstborn, Jew and Egyptian alike. Israeli and Egyptian alike, their children would die as the angel of death passes over all of Egypt. But God makes a provision for his people. And here's where, if you know the story, they are instructed by God. Mo- Moses and Aaron get some instruction by God that we'll look at here real briefly in uh, Exodus 12 that allows for an exception. Your, your firstborn don't have to die. I'm going to show my grace once again. On my people, uh, so if you have your Bibles, you may keep your your hand in mark fourteen or, or just check out the screen for Exodus twelve with us, and then we'll be on the same page and we 'll keep cruising forward. Exodus twelve verse one, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. This is going to be a big deal, and it's all going to start here. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month Nisan or Nisan, every man shall take his lamb according to the father's house, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take accordingly to the number of persons according to what each can eat. You shall make your count for the lamb. That's important because you have to eat it all. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, number one, and a male about a year old. That's the prime of a little lamb's life. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of this month for inspection, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel uh, shall kill their lambs at twilight on the fourteenth day. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the house, uh, each uh, of the house in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on a fire, and with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its legs and inner parts. There's some detailed instruction here. Verse 10, and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. They're about to make a run for it, aren't they? It is the Lord's Passover, he says. Last couple of verses. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike out all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. And Pharaoh's about to know that. Verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Last verse. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So that, in fact, happens. The tenth plague happens. God passes over his people who were obedient. We don't have anything uh, that would lead us to believe that that not all of them did that, and so it seems they did, and they were uh, graciously protected and preserved by God. Pharaoh sends them out, and I love this. If you read verse 13 or 31, it says, Then he summoned Moses and Aaron that night up, get out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel. Go, serve your Lord, and as you've said, take your flocks and your herds, as you've said, and be gone. And he says, And bless me also. Tell God good things about me, because I now fear him. This is the beginning of the Exodus, and in uh, chapters uh, 41 or verses 41 through 50, 43 through 51 of that chap- chapter, there's the institution of the Passover. And now it is Thursday. It has been almost 1,500 years and God's people continue to do this memorial feast. Uh, even the division of the kingdom, even the, the exile of God's people and, and the kingdom dispersing, they never stopped this tradition, right? Very traditional people held to very symbolic things. Why? Because they symbolize some very powerful truths about God. And we see the faithfulness of God's people in how long they kept this this memorial. But on Thursday night, this night, Jesus would put an end to Passover. You see, it's been the plan all along that the Passover would be a thing. It would be an event it would be a memorial, and then one day it would be fulfilled. And now if you have your Bible in, your Mark, in Mark chapter uh, 14, we'll start at verse 12, and this is the completion, the fulfillment of what was the Passover, and Jesus is going to pass the baton to the new covenant, and this is where we call it the a communion. Verse 12, And on the first day of unleavened bread... When they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat Passover? And he sent his two disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready there, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city, those two, and found it just as he told them, and they prepared for the Passover. Verse 17, and when it was evening, Jesus came with his 12, the other 10 in fact, and they were reclining at the table and eating. Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and say to one, uh, one after another, "It is I. Is it I? He said to them, It is the one of the twelve who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that, to that man who, whom, by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take This is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank it. And he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, the the Hillel hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Do you see it? The lamb prepared, the feast prepared, and everything so far Christ had claimed to be. My mind initially goes back to John the Baptist in John, where in the Apostle John's writing, John the Baptist says, "Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world." And you would almost imagine every Jew on, on the planet would go, "Oh, I see it." And they would identify Him as the Messiah. And in many cases, that happened. But in many more cases, it, it didn't happen. They missed the plan. See, this was the plan in the entire time. Mark 14 puts a period on what God began back in Exodus 12. And it's not a period as much of a, as a comma or a dash because He then fulfills and completes it. But there's pictures of the plan. Uh, We see in this account, in Mark chapter 14 on Thursday, we see the power of God's plan. We're going to see the pain that Jesus would experience to fulfill the plan that the Father had for Him. The point of the plan is that He would solve the problem that we began at the very beginning. And then there's a pleasure that Christ has. It's so important Because remember there's a pain and now there's the pleasure of the pain that would make it and make you and make me worth it to him to endure Thursday. And if we look at the picture of the plan first, this is what many Jews would would experience firsthand. Way more intimately than than anything I'm going to be able to describe and for the most part probably uh, way more intimate than any one of us in this room has ever experienced. Uh, I've, I've been to Stephen Gears, uh, who is, by the way, the, the pastor of Bestar Shalom that meets here, Messianic Jewish congregation on Saturday. If you don't know, uh, he's he's their their senior pastor, and he's also the head of a of a uh, uh, finding the Jewish heart uh, in Christianity, which is Christ. Uh, and he, he has a ministry, and, and in some ways to raise some money and awareness for his awesome ministry, who's doing great things, he'll, he'll provide a really fantastic experience. He'll, he'll lead, and he does this for most of the Jewish holidays. But I've attended the Seder dinner experience, that he will teach the elements, all of the parallels seen in the Last Supper, in uh, the Passover meal, and now into communion, and all the symbolism. There are some pretty powerful pictures of this plan. To fulfill the Passover, to use the Passover as an example, a shadow, a type of Christ. Uh, one thing that we see, one picture of, of this massive plan of God is just the Passover lamb itself. Uh, it's a spotless lamb, right? Uh, it's in the prime of its life. It was inspected for four days, all of which we talked about a couple days ago. This is Christ, the spotless, sinless lamb. The prime of his life is about a man named, or a, a man at the age of 30, right? And, and this is a parallel to the lamb. I'm 30, that's why I adjusted my time. Prime of my life. But it's a powerful picture a lamb about one year old, a man about 30. Inspected for four days, right? Once they choose the lamb, Christ was in Jerusalem for four days. You're, you're supposed to prepare the lamb and, and, and cook, kill and cook it without breaking any bones. We know that Christ's bones were not broken. On the cross, and we'll hear more about that come Friday. But that's a parallel. Though they usually would break the knees and and guarantee the 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 um, uh, the suffi- uh, you, you would suffocate the suffocation of, of those that they crucify. You would break the knees and you would fall. But to Christ it was different, right? They pierced his side. Same way prepared and and killed for dying our death without breaking a bone. He was offered up and and eaten symbolically with Christ and with the Lamb. A literal picture of Christ. The entire meal was a potent picture of the Messiah. If you think about the cup, uh, if you were to sit down for a Jewish Seder, uh, there, there would be four cups. The cup of sanctification, deliverance, redemption, and consummation. All of those fast forward some time and we see in Christ that sanctification, the only righteousness that we have is in Christ. The only hope of sanctification being holy, being made new that you and I have is in the gift of Of the Holy Spirit that Christ gives us. The cup of deliverance. They would celebrate being delivered out of Egypt and out of slavery. We celebrate a far greater deliverance. Deliverance from the power of sin and slavery to sin. So in sanctification we're in Christ. Relieved from the the penalty of death. And in the, the deliverance we're relieved from the power of death and sin. And these are pictures. The cup of redemption is believed to be the cup that, that the, the gospel writers reference as Jesus is introducing the new covenant. And he completes redemption with the new covenant. This is not just some redemption in the Old Testament times being given grace on or, or by God in order to know him and and to, to read his law and to know him at a distance. We now are redeemed to him intimately through Christ. The cup of consummation, God promises them uh, entrance into the promised land, right? Customarily, at the end of the, the Passover meal, there would be a special prayer about the continuing of the feast in Jerusalem. Something to the effect of, and until we eat this again in Jerusalem next year. And Jesus addresses this in verse 25. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Ezekiel 40 talks about the coming of Christ Christ and how we will take communion. We will supper with him in the new Jerusalem at the marriage feast of the Lamb. These are powerful, power pictures of Christ. So that's the cup. Think about the bread. Think about the unleavened, sinless, 1 John 3, 5 and others. Christ was sinless. The holes in the stripes. I don't know if you've ever seen matzah bread before. It's got holes the way you bake it without saying anything to the effect of, hey, by the way, when your Messiah comes, besides in Isaiah, but during the Passover meal, that the line was never connected, that that your Messiah would would hang on a, a cross, and that he would be whipped, and that he would be pierced. Now, there's other parts in Scripture even later where you could argue the prophets were plenty clear, but they didn't see that picture of Christ. Another picture is the second matzah cracker Unleavened piece of bread, you would, you would take it out from the stack, the second one. Remember, Christ is the second man of, the, of, of God, the second part of the Trinity, right? So you would take out the second one, and you would break it, and you would identify which part is bigger. And you would take the larger piece, and you would put it in a pillowcase, or maybe give it to the kids to hide, and you would identify the smaller piece, you would break it, and you would eat it. Now, what that tells me is that Christ comes in humility the first time. He's broken for us, becomes a spiritual king, but later... And they would call that dessert, by the way, the larger cracker. Later, he's going to come in power, and he's going to come again. And that's when we're going to really celebrate these. These are powerful pictures. Jesus said in John 6, I'm the bread of life. And he explains all his ministry long. And it should have been a crescendo for those disciples in the upper room. The Passover was a powerful, prophetic picture of God's plan to redeem his people back to himself. It's a clear picture. Picture of the plan. Now we see some really compelling insight for the power of the plan. Watch this. In verse 13 through 17, we see Jesus powerfully manage his final hours once again. Remember a couple weeks ago I said I that I loved Tuesday more than I've ever loved Tuesday, that he displays his power. Well, here here he is again. And by the way, I think I love Thursday, Jesus, now more than any other day. And that's probably gonna be a theme that continues, right? But we see his power and his authority again. Controlling not just the years and the months and the, the weeks, but the days and now the hours of his death. You see that uh, in verse 13 through 17, he he sends two disciples, and by Luke's account, we know it's Peter and John. He sends these two on a secret mission to find a really interesting thing, and that is a man carrying water on his head, which would have been very uncommon, but that would have been kind of their, hey, turn right at the yellow barn. It's like there's no yellow barn. There's one That's probably where he's saying, turn right. and He's giving these secret clues. Why? Because Judas intends to betray him this night. And if Jesus says, all right, here's the deal. Everybody meet up at Michael Hatzel's house. Uh, Here's the address. I'm going to send you an Evite. Uh, Be there about 30 minutes early. We've got some prep to do. Judas would have said, yeah, see you there. He would have gone his way, backstabbed the Son of God, And in the middle of the Passover dinner, they would have been intruded upon. Jesus never would have uh, prayed the high priestly prayer or given all the instructions that we see in John chapter 14, 15, and 16, and 17. Jesus would never have washed the disciples' feet. And so, if we read between the lines quite clearly, and this is made even more clear in John 13, we understand that Jesus is preserving Those final hours and then Judas would have come with the rest of the ten and by the time he got into the upper room you're not going to leave then that's way too obvious it was too late Jesus had his final hours and then he dismisses his betrayer in a way that flexes his authority once again John 13 27 again this is the power of Christ's plan to fulfill the Passover John 13 27 then after they had taken the morsel Satan entered into him. This is John filling in some holes. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Jesus is a fugitive, and he's been so for some time, but he doesn't hide. He doesn't go to a secret place to prayer in preparation for the cross. He goes to where, according to John 18, this is very commonplace. Judas maybe arrives at the upper room with the band of people with swords and clubs, right? Right? And they go, where'd they go? Judas got probably one or two places to think of next. Maybe they're back in Bethany, or maybe they're in the garden. They're probably in the garden. And you get the idea that they stumble upon Jesus in a place that was on the top two or three places that he ever would have been. He's a fugitive, but he's not hiding. And here's what he says, let's get up now, because there is my accuser. Jesus' ministry was over, Period. He would now allow for his arrest. From that point on, he hands and lays down his own life, as we talked about a couple weeks ago, and he succumbs to now the pain of the plan. Thursday, and this would kind of be the banner over Thursday, if if it were me looking at Thursday, Thursday was a very painful day for Jesus in in every way. Uh, The first that we see, and this is going to be the, the height of Friday, but first we see a physical pain. Uh, Jesus is illegally seized in the middle of the night before any uh, court hearings could have any legitimacy. There, he's illegally seized forcefully for fear of a riot. And he's dragged to the high priest. And they mock him and they, they blindfold him and they punch him and they say, prophesy to us, who hit you? Which one of us hit you? It was painful physically, but something tells me Um, the physical pain would would have to wait. He was also experiencing experiencing emotional pain. Thursday is the day where he was betrayed and denied by his closest friends and even his enemies and even some of the marginal followers of Jesus. When we think about the emotional pain, we have to remember that Jesus, just hours before, washed the twelve's feet With that in mind, let's go through in in Mark chapter 14. we'll, We'll hit verse 44, 50, and 69. And verse 44 tells us that now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. It's a very intimate word for kiss. It was a very intimate scene. And though Judas was apostate, and maybe never really truly a follower of, of Jesus, never really honestly saw Jesus as the Messiah, Jesus had still invested his life and his ministry into Judas. We're told that he was sold for 30 pieces of silver. Back in uh, Zechariah chapter 11, we know that's the price of a slave. It's insulting. And if you love Jesus, it the the, the emotional pain hurts way worse than even the physical pain sometimes when you Think back to this. Now, verse 50, we're told upon his arrest, they all left him and fled. Jesus has had foretold Peter's denial. Now, all the fringe disciples, for fear of their own arrest and murder, or crucifixion, even, they deny Jesus and they are they're ashamed of him. We know that in verse 69, Peter ultimately denies Jesus a third time before. Three, two times before the rooster crows, three times. And, the, and in verse 69 we read this, And the servant girl saw him, Peter, and began again to say to the bystanders, This is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while the bystander uh, against, again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man for whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. It was a painful day physically, emotionally, but the focus of Thursday is his spiritual pain. See, after Thursday, between what we're about to read and the time of his arrest, was the most painful spiritual experience Christ would would ever, ever face. But once he got past that point, and we're going to see how the Lord helped him here, he would have us in front of him. By the joy set before him, he would have us in front of him. He would have fulfilling the the Father's plan in front of him. But for the next couple of hours, Jesus would experience intense spiritual pain. Soul pain is what he describes it as. It's beyond emotional In verse 32 we read, And when they went to a place called Gethsemane, he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John, began to be greatly distressed and troubled. He said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed. If it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what... You will. It's a really heavy text and oftentimes confusing text because we're hailing the authority and the power of Jesus and all of a sudden he falls. He begs that it be taken away from him and then has to humbly submit to the Father's plan. This is known as the, the final temptation of Satan and John. We're told that Jesus says the hour of darkness is at hand. He's referring to a, a pronoun. This is Satan's last unbridled attempt to tempt uh, Jesus into staying in this world and being king in, in this world and, and to not go through with the plan that God had for you and for us. See, Jesus wasn't supposed to go to the cross according to Satan's plan. If that were the case, remember when Jesus was tempted before his ministry? And Satan was willing, although we're not sure he could ever do this. But he promises, he doesn't push him toward the cross, hey, go die, get off the planet. Hey, just go die. He's saying, no, be a king here. Be a king here and submit to me and use your own power for your own good and and never mind the Father. You deserve better than this. Remember when Peter was offended when Jesus said, I need to go die. What does Jesus say to Peter? Get thee behind me, Satan. that That's a lie. I do have to die. Jesus says, do, do I not need to drink the cup that the Father has given me? Satan knew that the power of Jesus is released into the heart of his people if he can die and raise again. But the main struggle was not between Jesus and the main act. Anguish and agony was not because it was between Jesus and Satan. It was between God and God. Here's what I mean. In Luke, we're told that an angel strengthened him. Why does an angel have to strengthen him? And I think it's possible to downplay the human experience, not the humanity. It's possible to downplay the human experience that Christ had in the form He was in. A commentator, Matthew Henry, says this, Christ's sufferings began with the sorest of all, those in the soul. The terrors of God set themselves in array against Him, and He allowed Him to contemplate them. Never was sorrow like unto His own at this time. Now He has made a curse for us. The curse of the law was upon Him, and as ours that we deserved." He now tasted death in all the bitterness of it. I've read the Matthew 17, Eli, Eli, lama Sabotani, My God, my God, why do you forsake me? I've read that before, and I've had people insist to me that that this is just a a simple reference to Psalm 22. And this is a, a reference to a prayer. But this is not a reference... To a prayer with all physical capabilities available to him. Christ was in anguish. Christ experienced a disparaging separation from God. This is the climax of the cross that we'll deal with on Friday. But here's the point. This is an emotional weight on him for his entire ministry. And certainly in the garden. He knew that he would have to become sin For those of us who knew sin, he would, in 2 Corinthians 5, become sin, that we might be the righteousness of God through Christ. Hebrews 9 says that uh, he was offered to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 2 says, he himself bore our sins in his body. Galatians 3, he was made a curse for us. God treated Jesus as if he had personally committed, and this is the only way you and I are cleared, by the way, God treated Jesus as if He had personally committed every sin that would ever be committed by every person who would ever believe. When in reality, He had committed none of them. Well, how come good things happen to bad people? We know that that never really happened, with exception of this moment right here. Only God is good. Only Christ was sinless. Only Christ was perfect. But being treated at the opposite end of the spectrum as the farthest sinner, as though there were degrees from God. Taking on Him and in Him the evil of sin that holds the world in slavery, giving everyone to trust Christ's sacrifice for their sin's freedom from sin and trading them with His righteousness so that we could now approach God through Christ. That was the point of the plan. That was the, the reason it had to be painful because wherever there is sin, there has to be death. And that's why it was strategic because he had a perfect life to live in the meantime. I love this. As part of the Passover meal, there's a a, a Dayune song, and I won't sing it to you like I was singing it to my my wife this morning, but it's a traditional song uh, sung for many years before the time of Christ. Some think even as much as 250 years before the temple was destroyed. Uh, But Dayune means enough for us. This would be a song, and there's 15 stanzas. I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to sing them. uh, And they're all referencing the the different historical contexts the Israelites experienced uh, the slavery, from uh, slavery uh, in Egypt all the way to the temple. Like, look at all God has done. And they write this beautiful song. And each stanza, uh, after each stanza, the, the chorus is sung, signifying, listen to this, that if this was the total, each stanza, it's progressive, right? And so the point is, even if he just started here, and the first stanza is this, if he had brought us out of Egypt and not carried out judgment against them, Dayune it would have sufficed us that's what you're going to say after I'm done here ready if he had carried out judgment against them and not against their idols dayune it would have sufficed us couple more uh, if he had brought us before mount sinai but had not given us the torah dayune would have sufficed us one more skipping one this is how it ends if he had brought us into the land of israel and had not built for us the temple Dayune. Here's the problem. That The beauty of that prayer is, should those things be enough for God's people to worship Him? Yes. Because what, after all, do we deserve from Him in the first place? Here's the point of God's plan. The, the, the picture of the plan that He graciously provides for us, right? The power of Jesus highlighted in the plan of God to die at just the right moment. The pain of the plan that Christ endured. Here's, here's the point of the plan. Because everything else leading up to Passover, even the next day the cross, wasn't enough. It would not have sufficed. Not God. It was enough for us to say, look at what you've done. You're so gracious to us. Yes, you brought us to this mountain, but then you decided not to give us your law. Okay, as Ryan said in worship, you're still worth worshiping because of who you are, Period. And then everything that you add on to that, because you're gracious, that's just another reason we have to worship. But God deserves our worship regardless of how good He is to us. Do you realize that? Because of solely who He is, He's your Creator. Just like your parents have brought you into this world, I can take you out. Why did I say? Why do you have to obey me? Because I said so. Period. Should that be enough, parents? Is it enough? No. Because man, we've got so much to prove, and they're little kids. Here's the deal. So. So, so are we, and, and if we're perfect little kids or we get a glimpse as, as, as adults of what we should have acted like, we would have realized, yes, they're my parents. I should have listened because they said so. Do we love God and worship God? Has He given us enough to worship? Yes, even if He never brought us out of Egypt in the first place. But if you consider that song, if I'm God in heaven, if I, and if I'm Christ at the table, this is what spiritually is going on in the plan is to God that was not enough. You need every step because it all leads to Jesus. We had a sleepover, uh, Cooper had a sleepover with a friend named Ty. It was their first sleepover and it would end horribly. It started out really good, however. Uh, we, you know, you do macaroni and hot dogs, who doesn't love that, right? We probably did chocolate milk, Capri Suns, like we were doing it right and uh, everything was going really well. We said, hey, go get ready for bed. And we were about to like, you know, put a, a check mark on like first sleepover ever, seamlessly, no problem. And, and we hear Ty scream from Cooper's room. Well, you know where this is going if you have kids, or at least you have multiple options running in your head. And I'm going to keep talking just so that list grows and the anticipation <laughs> grows. But, but what happened was they were jumping off of Cooper's bed. Here's another hint. So this, this young man, little boy, five years old, uh, they tie stuff around their collar, pretend it's a cape. They're jumping off stuff. This is something Cooper's instructed not to do. It's on the list of things we printed out in his room. Just kidding. But but clearly, we've said stuff like this before. But no, no, no. You get a friend over, rules go out the window. We're supposed to have a good time. And so they're jumping, tie falls. He's complaining that his arm is hurt. And so, so I'm like, oh, no. So I, I kneel down and, and just, you know, like the doctor that I'm not, uh, I, you know, just kind of do a little like pre, you know, checkout, a little trauma. And, uh, and I, I'm squeezing gently, right? Uh, just barely squeezing and applying a little more pressure each time just to make sure there's not like, ooh, that hurt, right? And that's an indicator. Well, I'm kind of doing that gently and and pushing kind of as hard as I need to just to make sure I know that something's not wrong. And I was a very responsible, you know, uh, parent. Uh, By the way, we're certified now if your kids want to hang out with Cooper. I feel like (laughs) Cooper's not going to have any more friends after this. But but I felt like his arm was fine. Uh, He continued not crying or like screaming at all, but he was kind of just like, "Ah, you know, I'll be okay. It's kind of sore. Uh, And so what do you do when a kid has a boo-boo that you can't make go away? You put a... Band-Aid on it, right? You put a Band-Aid on it. So literally, I'm a great, you know, caretaker. So, uh, and yes, we are adopting, by the way. Um, but I put a Band-Aid on it. He goes to bed. We make sure he's okay. He says he's fine. He go, we go to bed, wake up the next morning, and they're playing Mario Kart with the Wii, and Ty is using one hand, and his, his hurt arm is down by his side. I'm going, oh, no. We're eating cereal later, and he's awkwardly eating cereal with one hand. Not that you used two anyways, but it was just like it was down here like it had a cast on it or something. So I'm going, oh, no. We call the parents. Turned out, Ty broke his arm. <laughs> Ty broke his arm. Um, Ty is a fantastic kid. This is a fantastic family. By far, the family. You don't want to have their can- their friends or their kids come over and you break their arm. Uh, it was just really hard for us. We po- apologized a million times, but here's the reality. I put, this guy, put a Band-Aid on a broken arm. Why? It literally happened. Here's why the Lord allowed that experience in my life, so I could tell you this. The sacrificial system, the sacrificial system that began at Passover and that they celebrated uh, at the Passover meal 1,500 years later was a Band-Aid on a spiritual broken arm and nothing less It was a band-aid on a spiritual broken arm and nothing less. God provided. God allowed. He made a concession. And it was gracious to God's people in order to say, listen, as long as you do this, which reminds me that that you're reminded of your sin and your, your unholiness. If you just keep doing this and all throughout the Old Testament, God wanted our heart, didn't He? But these were just symbols and types that would hopefully encourage a heart of worship and dependence on God and reminding that Christ is holy and that we are not holy, right? I'm going to keep talking. God provided a concession for his people. The sacrificial system was a bandaid on a broken arm and here comes Christ to set our arm and cast our arm And as you may know, even in that spot where a bone might break, it it will even calcify to the point of in that one area being even stronger theoretically than other parts of the bone. And here's the point that Christ would fix what we were covering. Hebrews 9 verse 23 through 27 says, Thus it was necessary for the copies of heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves... With better sacrifices than these, for Christ has entered not only into the or not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Verse twenty-five. Now it was, it to, or nor was it to offer himself repeatedly every year as a high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he he had uh, appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. This is the point of Thursday. This is the point of God's plan that's identified to us in the changing from Passover to communion. The point of the plan is this, and the point of the sermon is this. Christ's death on the cross finally And fully paid for sin. The Passover meal was was a band-aid on a broken arm that God graciously allowed to, to cover our sins. Christ would come and set our arm and cast our arm and pay the price necessary that our sins would be fully and finally forgiven. but Thursday would require a lot of pain for that to happen but then we see the pleasure of the pain Luke 22 in the Passover account I love this verse 15 I this is Jesus I have earnestly desired that the Greek says I have desired with a great desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer knowing he's going to suffer he's excited he's spiritually he desires he's got an earnest desire to spend this time, make this transition, share the gospel, and to teach them. Christ anticipated forever the weight of sin he felt in the garden. First Peter 1.18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was, he, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for your sake. Luke 12.50, this is Jesus. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Isaiah 53, it pleased God to crush his son. John three sixteen. for God so loved the world, right? That he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. This was the plan for a really long time. I don't know if you've ever been anxious or nervous about things for a long time. That can be taxing. That can be taxing, but it wasn't just emotional and it certainly wasn't just physically. This was a spiritual pain, but there was also a, also a spirit uh, there was a pleasure in Christ to satisfy the plan of the Father and to bring us to the Father. Jesus going to the cross was not about you, but it was it was for you. It wasn't about us, it was about obedience to the Father, but it was it was certainly for us that we might have entrance to God. The shedding of blood was required. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is what? Eternal life through Christ. Something, someone has to die, and the purity of the sacrifice will equal the amount of the payment, and Christ is eternal, and Christ is holy. And so His one perfect life, perfect death, pays for the sin of all who would believe Christ's death on the cross finally and fully paid for our sin. A book that Dave and I are reading on the book of Mark says this. This is Timothy Keller. He says, if you went into Egypt for the first Passover and asked an Israelite in those days, you would ask him this. Who are you and what is happening here? They would say, I was a slave under a sentence of death, but I took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, And escaped that bondage. And now God lines our midst and we are following him to the promised land. Here's what's so powerful about that as he says, that's exactly what Christians say today. And as powerful as it is that there was one event, an earthly event, where they're not under the rule of a king, an earthly king anymore, as powerful of an event as that was that the Lord removed them from that situation... There's a spiritual reality in our life where before coming under the blood of Christ, we are under spiritual rule, spiritual oppression, aren't we? I often wonder why Jewish people, messianic Jewish people, continue in the culture of Judaism. And it's weeks like this, it's looks at scriptures like this that make me go, even as a Christian, how powerful are these reminders? How powerful are these pictures of the power and the pain and the point of Jesus coming and now the pleasure that he had with which he died. And this is why we take communion. Uh, the band's going to make their way back up onto the stage and this whole sermon is, is in, on one hand a sermon, a study of, of scripture, but it's also communion set up. Our hearts should be very tender at this point, to to what it is we're about to to experience and and how we're going to celebrate what Christ has done for us. As they get ready, a couple of things. John 6 tells us that uh, this is Jesus' words. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Communion is a powerful symbol, but it's a symbol only just like the Passover was. Despite the surface reading of of, eat my flesh and and drink my blood, despite the surface reading and and other misinterpretations of that particular passage, uh, this is a powerful symbol for us. It reminds us of the pain and let's not forget the pleasure of Christ to die for us. And as we experience or think about Passover and take communion, we are locked into Thursday. Friday hasn't happened yet, but at the same time, after the cross, whether it's the first day after the cross or 2015 years after the cross, I'm I'm not going to not talk about the cross because Dave's preaching about it next week either. We have to talk about the cross because that's why we're here this morning. And so as we take communion, we're going to look back, but not at a single earthly deliverance. We're looking at the cross, a spiritual deliverance deliverance that we have. Uh, 1 Corinthians 11 says this as we prepare to take communion. Paul writes, For I have received from the Lord what did I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink of the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul continues with a warning, and this will explain something else that's on the communion table for us this morning. Verse 27 says, Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks of the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself, herself, then, and so eat the bread and drink of the cup. We see uh, the first instruction of God's holiness when it comes to um, identifying ourselves with with Christ. We we see the first picture of of no foreigner being able to take of the Passover meal back in Exodus 12. Um, We see in, in our look today at Mark chapter 14 that Judas was dismissed before communion or the Passover was experienced. And so this leads us just to rightfully just encourage you, as Paul says, to examine yourself. And if you're not in Christ and you have not accepted the the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for for you, if you haven't identified yourself as a sinner in need of a substitute, then your rightful response this morning is is worship through song, and, and we'd encourage you certainly prayer. And if you're a believer this morning, that that we would, uh, sensitive to the, the the work of Christ on the cross, that we would eat this in remembrance of him until the day he comes back. And so we're not only looking back, we're looking forward, aren't we? We're not only looking back at the cross, we're, we look also with anticipation toward the day that Jesus will return. So for those of you who are far from God, I would say consider Christ, that, that this was this was the sacrifice was made so that you might know God. The Son of God who endured Thursday, who became the sin for you in order to die in your place. And Romans 10 9 tells us what then we do next. If you confess with your mouth that the Lord Jesus, um, that, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says you'll be saved. So if that's you this morning, you're saying, I've never accepted the trade. I've never taken his sacrifice on the cross as payment for my sin. And you know what? Sounds like too good of a deal to pass up, and I happen to identify myself as a sinner far from God, and I need that. Pray a prayer with your heart meaning it. If that means you talk to a pastor, someone after the service today, uh, or someone that you're convinced is a follower of Jesus, and, and we would love the opportunity to encourage you. So consider Jesus. And for a believer this morning, let's come and let's honor Christ and remember.